Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. I'm really excited to have Bob Mesta back on the show. Bob, thanks again for coming back. Jess, thanks for having me on. It was a blast last time. I'm looking forward to this one. I will have you know, I referred your, your last book, Demand Side Sales 101, to many, many a CEO. Um, I just feel like it's so helpful to, I, I feel like it's like we've all been looking in the same direction for so long that we, we didn't bother to like look over our shoulder the other direction. And there's like so much more helpful information. And uh, it's funny how many times I've asked the question, like I'm, I'm advising some entrepreneur or somebody's just asked me a question and they're, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like, what are the conditions that turn into the sale or, or what's happened? And all they can give me is features of the product. And I'm always like, well, let's, let's talk about it in terms of a mattress sale. So how long was your, how long was your mattress uncomfortable? How long did, did that company have sales? Like, what was it that Saturday morning that actually caused you? And I know I'm doing a bad job of quoting you, but that's my version of it. That's exactly right. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm actually advising uh, some startups around this. And one of the things that's so interesting is like the, the sales meetings are so much more uh, vivid because now we can talk about what's really going on in people's lives. And, and the salespeople are getting that information as opposed to just getting what, like what features resonate with them because they would just stop at the features and they'll be like, well, why is that feature important to you? And what can you do with it if you have it? And, and so all of a sudden, as they dig deeper, it makes like people realize like, are they really ready to buy or not? And if they can't actually unpack, typically they're going to be more impassive looking than they are in active looking or even deciding. And so you start to realize where you think they are and where they are, you can actually pick up because of just, just talking to them. So it's yeah. so awesome. And it's, it's helping salespeople listen more because they're starting to realize like they need that detail to basically bring back. And so we, we've changed the sales funnel to the timeline and say, where, where are people and what facts do you have to know where they're at? And so it's, it's so much fun, to be honest, to watch teams just kind of transform themselves that way. Well, for anybody who missed the last episode, can we do just like a quick overview of like how many patents, how many companies, how many, the, 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 quick, the quick history? Yeah, I, I've, I would say I was born an engineer. My mom would tell you out of the womb, I was breaking things by the time I was two. I've been fixing things by the time I was four. I've I've been building products uh, almost uh, 40 years, um, and I've worked on 3,500 different products, ranging from the guidance system for the Patriot missile and the space shuttle main engine to uh, Pokemon mac and cheese and base camp and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Google suite. So, like, half the stuff on your phone, uh, a third of the stuff in the grocery store, and probably a quarter of the stuff in Home Depot is pretty much what I've worked on. And so I've always been kind of... Uh, I have a, a an engineering background, but I've always been about trying to add value to to the end consumer, and so it's always been a uh, you know kind of a, a gift of that, if you will. So speaking of Basecamp, I'm I'm right. I'm like Kindle says I'm 76 percent through the book, and it's right where after that Jason Fried quote about uh, about having yep get the first half awesome instead of having a whole thing that's mediocre, and. Uh, and a lot, a lot of times we end up, we end up trying to do too much. And so what happens is really good. You're, you're what I call man, uh, identifying and managing trade-offs. And what you find is that some people, when they're really bad at it, they just keep adding more things and they don't know what to take out of it. And, and like when, as a consumer, when you look at a product and you go like, why does it have all these extra things? Like, I don't know why. And, and it turns out that it's because we haven't really listened to the demand side that much. That's awesome. You know, so I finally got connected with him on LinkedIn last night, and later on last night, he agreed to come on the show. So I'm really excited to 
Jason's Jason's awesome. It's, it, he's he's such a uh, you know I'll say a curious cat. Like he just he's very very uh, smart. He's also very reflective. At the same time, you know he's decisive, but he'll also change his mind with the right data. And so he's he's just really fun to work with. And so you start to realize like like he said, well we were thirty seven signals, and you know what we're going to focus on base camps. So we're going to base camp, and then. They created hay and they realized like, you know what, we want to do multiple products. So we're going back to 37 signal. Like it's that notion of kind of being very um, in the moment and and making decisions kind of uh, based on based on the context. And he's, you know, we're, we're you know, we've, we've worked together for a long time. He's such a great person. Well, I, I liked your story in there about. I, I will say, like, over the years, just everything I've heard about him and buying his books and things like he really comes across as somebody who thinks for himself instead of yeah. what are you supposed to do. That's a very that's a very very fair assessment, and I and I think he he's he he has that notion which I think I I learned from Dr. Deguchi, which is there's way more unknown than there is known, and that like don't forget it, like don't don't think you have all the answers because most of the time you don't have any answers, and that's that's the the humbleness that Clay taught me as well. But Jason has that humbleness as well. He's very confident, but at the same time, he, he, he's, he's also kind of open. So it's a very interesting, he's, like I said, very interesting to work with. For people, again, who haven't read the book, can you talk about your main mentors? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the new book is called um, Learning to Build. And uh, my youngest daughter graduated high school or college in uh, May. And um, the one thing you do is when you when when your last kid graduates from college, you start to realize like, well, maybe we need we don't need all this stuff. And so I go up to the attic and I find uh, 847 notebooks from when I was 18 years old till today of every project I've ever been on. And I'm like, OK, I don't need this stuff. I need to throw it out. My wife goes, no, 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 no. Let's why don't you go through it and look at it? And out of that basically was born this 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 book, which was. You know, I was, you know, I'm dyslexic. I can't read. I can't write. I'm illiterate. And for the most part, at 18 years old, I was told to be a baggage handler at the airport. And what I did is I kind of reflected through those books and through the people who had such a very big part of my life to teach me how to go from being a baggage handler at the airport to being a, uh, you know, an innovator working on over 3,500 products. And so my mentors basically have taught me that. My first mentor was I was 18 years old or 19 years old. He was 85. His name was Dr. Deming, and he's the gentleman who went to Japan in 1952 and helped rebuild, you know, basically the, you know, after World War II. And he's the father of the Toyota production system. And I got to work with him when I worked at Ford, where we reduced product development cycle time by from 36 months to uh, from 72 months to 36 months. So he taught me all these different methods and tools to help kind of reduce product development cycle time, and I applied that over and over and over again. And then I had uh, Dr. Genichi Taguchi, who is, um, he's the father of, of quality engineering. And he basically is, is, he won the Deming Prize in Japan like six or seven times. And I got to work with him side by side for almost eight years. And he taught me about systems and how to think about, how to see problems and see functions. And that uh, variation is really, pro you know, variation is really the cause of most problems. And being able to understand how to take it, variation into account. And then I, uh, I also had a boss at Ford. Uh, his, her name was uh, Dr. Willie Moore, and she was, um, she's the one who basically taught me how to really think differently in terms of seeing systems and, and thinking things through. And, and she, she was uh, very hard to work for, but I just I learned so much from her. And then there was the, the last but not least, but Clay Christensen, who 
you know, he taught me all about disruptive innovation and we, uh, we, we worked on the, the jobs to be done theory together. And so I've been very, very blessed in my, in my career. And I think we all have mentors. I think the, the fact is, is in a lot of cases, we have mentors we've never met, but they've influenced our lives. And I think the notion of being able to uh, um, put some gratitude and, and realize like I wouldn't be here where I am without them. And at the same time, they've all passed. And so my part of my job now is to pay it forward. And so I'm mentoring many, many people and building different uh, processes and tools to kind of reflect that. And this book really kind of is that the cornerstone of those five essential bedrock skills that I learned and that the people I worked with have have almost always had that that aren't really explicit. And so I kind of made those uh, from implicit to explicit through the book. I feel like it's like a gift to me because you know, I got to have one call with Clay once when I cold called yeah. him at Harvard for yeah. a project I was working on for Intel. But besides yeah. that, it's just the books and YouTube videos. So I get to feel like I, I get to channel him through you. Oh, it's, I, I, was, I was blessed. Like if you really think, like I had four hours a quarter for 27 years with him. Like with no agenda, we just think. And it was just like, I felt like he turned into a five-year-old kid every time I walked into his office. Like he was, he was this big, tall, you know, he's six foot, I think six foot 10, six foot 11, very, very tall. And, and it's just one of those things when I got into the room and we were able to kind of start, we, we would kind of let the guard down and we could talk. It would be like, I could, I could ask questions and I could tell him that stuff didn't make sense to me. And he would, he would hone and refine, but he loved my questions and, and we would draw pictures together. And it was just so, so much fun to kind of collaborate with him. Let's talk about the five elements of the book. Can you give us a quick yeah. overview? And then I've yep. got a bunch of specific questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The five, the, the five skills are this. The first one is empathetic perspective. Really good innovators and entrepreneurs can see things from other people's perspective, almost unemotional or, or disconnected. Like their judgment is not part of the way they see the world. And so they can actually see like, how does it, how's accounting going to look at this? How is the customer going to look at this? How are the investors going to look at this? Um, how does this look from a strategic perspective? How does this look from a, from a tactile perspective? But they have this uncanny ability to, to see multiple perspectives and then connect the dots and almost see problems before they happen because they can actually um, you know, comprehend like the different conflicts that are going to happen. The second one is they know how to uncover demand, meaning that they realize that demand is inside people and that what we want to do and, and, and demand is caused by struggling moments and that once we see where people struggle, then we can actually then figure out where they, what, what needs to be built. And so they're not building things like an invention. They're actually finding struggling moments to go after and then building something to go after those struggling moments. The third one is that they, have, they all have a, a mental model. I call it causal structures. They have, a, one, a curiosity of how things work, but they also then have mental models to then figure out kind of exactly, like, how do I, how do I, uh, how can I make sense of these things? And so they're very much into sense making. And I, again, they mostly use it through cause and effect. The fourth one is when you kind of put all those together, you start to realize you don't know as much as you thought you knew and that you need to prototype to learn. And that most really good innovators and entrepreneurs, they don't prototype to verify, they prototype to learn, meaning I'm going to build this and I don't know what's going to happen. And so one of the things I learned in Japan from Dr. Taguchi was, how to use a designed experiments to actually help me understand and cause things to fail because I learn more from the anomalies of why it failed than why it works. And so ultimately, prototyping to learn is the fourth skill. And the last one is the one you're on, which is, uh, I like to say, uh, 
identifying and managing trade-offs. They know what not to do. They know what to suck at, right? And so part of this is that the very good innovators and entrepreneurs know how to prioritize that work and realize that, you know, uh, sorry, I'll say the kick-ass half is better than a half-ass hole, right? It's, it's just one of those things where you start to realize like, like, and I, I, and I find that I'm, I'm very prone to being able to build a product that's a minimalist type product, but always knocks it out of the park because it's, it's geared towards exactly the progress people are trying to make, not more, not less. And ultimately, um, I'm not trying to, to convince people to buy it. I'm, I'm actually trying to help them make progress. It's a really fun book because I feel like you cover so much ground. Uh, fun and... book. Okay, wait a second. I got to unpack that. What do you mean by fun? What does fun mean? Mm. It, it's like uh, it's like learning dessert. It's like it's like uh, it's like an enjoyable process. Yeah. Um, and because, I think one of the reasons what, what's part of it that makes it that way. Well, I think one of the reasons is um, the interconnection. You know, like as I've read your books and your mentors' books yeah. and other people's books and listened to endless talks on YouTube and oh, connecting the dots, interviewed people. Um, very often, these principles are much more siloed. And like, I'm thinking about your example of the, you know, can you make it so the mirrors don't pop off when it's cold? And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, and then when it was hot, it didn't work because, yeah. because it wasn't. Crack mirrors, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, crack mirrors, sorry. And yeah, then, yeah. but the problem is like, when you only isolate and solve the one problem, instead of thinking in terms of the entire ecosystem, thinking in terms yes. of the entire organism, thinking in terms of the entire system, Yep. Um, my, my, like I, I consider myself a bit of a learning nerd, but my problem is that too many of these folks don't know each other. And so yes. then I'm left trying to figure out how to bridge them and do they apply and what about when they contradict to each other? In what yes. circumstances do I, is which model more yep. advantageous? And, and so um, that's, like, that's it's Very like the lattice work. You know how Charlie yep. Munger talks about the lattice yeah. work, yep. mental lattice work of concepts? I feel like your book is doing a lot of work for me to create a mental lattice work across these disciplines and, and mental maps. The, the, yeah, the way I started the book with a, with a quote from the matrix, which is one of my favorite movies, but it's this aspect of ultimately, you know, being able to work on everything from, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mac and cheese and hot dogs to guidance systems for the Patriot, like all these different things. You're like, how does one's brain figure that out? Because they're very, very different. And what you start to realize is that when you start to see the matrix and understand it, like if I can frame everything as a system and I've got inputs, I've got outputs, I've got outcomes, I've got actions, and I can actually start to see it, like I can work on just about anything. And so it it's created a universal language for me to kind of approach any either opportunity or problem and see it in its entirety before I actually do anything. And so I think that to your point of the lattice work, it's, it's giving you the, uh, the ability to step back and see the whole. And at the same time, realize like you've got to look at this thing from multiple perspectives and you've got to change things to make it better. And ultimately, once you realize that, then it's like, okay, how do I figure that out? That's the lattice work, right? I think one of my, my favorite um, I like when you talk about perspectives because you can look at the same problem through the multiple lenses and it becomes more three-dimensional. You know, like I used to think my favorite mental model or, or, or set of principles was the Warren Buffett style of approaching kind of his mentors, uh, Ben Graham and Phil Fisher as part of Charlie Munger, kind of this thing. 
Uh, and really, over time, I've come to realize, like, actually, my favorite is Richard Koch and the 80-20 principle. And, um, and it's almost like whatever the problem, whatever the situation, the 80-20 principle doesn't give me that much to work with, but it lets me, it gives me the theory to know there's somebody who knows the 80-20. There is, there is um, some opportunity where a minority of efforts will create a majority of results. And so that's why, like, for instance, like your book, Demand Side Sales 101, I, I can know, okay, there's an, there is a high leverage set of ways to think about generating new customers. And I can have that premise of like, it, it's, it's got to exist. And so then I can start sorting for who do I think has it. And that's what led me to your book. That's right. Well, I, and I think this is the thing is, is that we've, we, you need, you need a place to play. Right. And, and what I, what I feel is like, this is where like everybody's expected to have the answer. And I, and I just think that's an unrealistic expectation. I like my expectation for people that I work with is that you, you, I don't expect you to have the answer because if you have the answer, then like that's half the fun is figuring it out, especially something new. Right. At the same time, the fact is, is like you've got to be able to play with the data and play with the perspectives because ultimately you're trying to solve something that's never been solved before. Like, like I'm, I know I'm not an operations guy because at the end of the day, I get bored because doing the same thing over and over again, it's kind of like I'm, I'm really not good at scaling because in the end, I want to keep tweaking it to make it better as opposed to do, do it for more. And ultimately, I know they get out of the way. And so every, every business I've built, I've gotten it to a certain point, but then I have to give it to somebody else who's really good at scaling. But like, I know my spot is like, if you will, from nothing to something, I can actually create new things very, very easily. It's just the fact that I, I don't, I don't like the details of kind of the scale part of it, taking it from, you know, from zero to 10 million is like, oh my gosh, that's so much fun. 10 million to a hundred million. is like nails to a chalkboard for me. Very hard. <laughs> it's, I know it's possible and there's way better people who can do that. So I'd rather have them do it and go back and start something new. And that's, that's the other reason why I think I've done so many products is I know where my space is and I know when I've outlived my space. Like I, I have a personal mission that my job, you know, I exist to make the abstract concrete. And the moment that it becomes concrete and clear, I'm done. Like, because that, that's actually now an executional thing. And there's, there's a thousand people who can help me do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay at it, but there's people who are way better at it. But getting something that's from very abstract to concrete, that's the hard work to me. And that's really what innovation is about. It's about going from the abstract to the concrete. If we could, I would really love to dive into what I think is my favorite thing in the book. Well, I guess yeah. I've got 25% left. So my favorite yeah, thing so fine. far, it's this sentence says, only then when I can see the hidden patterns can I think about scale. I know that my product does not create demand. Demand is created by a struggling moment where people have a space to fill. Yeah. I create value by understanding how to fill that space. Yes. Can we dive into this? Oh, yeah. This is, the, by the way, this, this is, uh, th that's, that's one of the diamonds that's in the, like, like under the pressure, right? Because at some point, the, the big difference to me on this one, uh, well, I'll let you dive in. You, you, like, I, I, I have a lot I'd love to talk about on it, but I'm going to let you dive in because I'd let you rather direct me a little bit here because I could go on a, I can go on a long tangent here. You know, for me, like, I'm thinking about, um, you know, the new business. If it's a new business, the business that my team is focusing on the most right now out of our three, right? Um, we are essentially, we're going to like investment fund managers and CEOs who want to show like mine with all these high profile guests. 
And essentially, we do all the hard work for them. We line up the guests, do the scheduling, do the briefing. They just show up for an hour and do the fun part of the interview. We post-produce it, cut it, you know, cut it into all the clips so it turns into like 1,200 social media posts over the year, right? And there's all these benefits from it. And I, I'm like, so after these interviews, I've been like catching guests and be like, hey, can you give me some advice for my business? How, how would you sell this to other CEOs and stuff, you know? And I realize um, just the feedback I get, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm really short on clarity. I've got a big mess. I've got a bunch of benefits. I've got a whatever. And, and what I don't think I have is a clearly defined struggle. And, you know, what CEOs and fund managers does make sense? Or at what point of their business or what part of their career cycle? Or, you know, like there's back to the like, there's way more unknowns than knowns. It's like, I know CEOs want to, like, I know a, a lot of CEOs want to connect with, you know, wealthy people, movie stars, pro athletes, Navy SEALs, you know, high profile people, wealthy people, potential customers, potential investors. Like, that's why we go to CEO events. That's why, like, that's why we do networking and things. So, like, I know there's something there because people keep buying this from us, but I also, like, am listening to the book just thinking about, like, how we're like, we're like, we're winning in spite of our lack of clarity. Like, well, that's right. What exactly think, is it they're buying from yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. Why so, are they so, buying it? Who's buying That's it? right. But this is, this is, this is why one is you can't talk to people who want to buy your product or just know about your product. You want to talk to people who have actually paid you money for your product. Right. And ultimately what you want to do is, is figure out what made this the right time to do this. Because my belief is none of them want, you know, you know, 20,000 social media posts. They don't want like what, like what is the real. So what you're talking about is what I call the output. The output is these results, these things, like the number of posts, the, the, it's really what's the outcome you want. And it's like, ultimately, do I have better investors? Do I have a larger pool to pull from? Um, do I have like, like what is the real outcome that they're seeking from it? And what like, so to me, it's always. What were they hoping for the moment they signed up for it? Like, how is life going to be different? And it's more like, well, in some cases, it could be as simple as like, look, this is just a lot of work and I'm really not interested in it. And I'd love to just have it be done. Like, I know I have to do it as part of the game, but the reality is like, you know, you, you have the people, you have the expertise, you can do it cheaper than I can. And at the end of the day, like whatever I'm paying, like, I don't need my people. I don't need to have this expertise in house. And so it's literally like, I want the people who work with me to do more. And so ultimately I want, I want that you to do this part so they can do something else. Right. And, and so that, that could be one of them. Another one is like, I'm in the midst of growing and I need to actually create influence. And so I need to scale that. And so I don't actually have any people to do it. And I need you to help me figure out how to scale this. But at the same time, they don't know whether it works or not. Right. And so ultimately how do they know it's going to work? And what is, what is the real outcome to say like when it, so the way I always say it is, you know, a year from now, what's going to be different now that you're, we're engaged together than, than before? And, and ultimately, it'd be like, well, to be honest, I got better clients. What do you mean you got better clients? It's like, well, I've got people who are educated more that actually can know when they need me and I'm not having to push, but they're creating pull. So ultimately, I feel like the market is pulling for me as opposed to me having to push. That's so, and I'm, I'm making that up, but that's that, like, if you're talking to me, it's like, if you want me to have that many posts, like, I really don't want that much exposure. Like, I don't really want to be 
you know, uh, in any way, I don't want to be a celebrity of any sort. I literally want to be the greatest footnote in history, right? And so part of me has an anxiety about it. But if I could actually, if you could help me find better clients and people who are ready for me, boy, that's a great thing. Like I have no interest in the, in the attention, but I have, I have interest in helping the right people at the right time. I guess my next question there is... Does that make any sense, by the way? or was it, I... it makes so much sense, but it leads me to the question of what if they don't know exactly what they want or what if they're not in a place to completely be honest? Because some of it is like ego, like, hey, you know, look at uh, how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie taught, you know, every intelligence officer, like leave salespeople and CEOs out. Every intel officer I've ever met, interviewed, become friends with, talks about how to win friends and influence people as like a, a guidebook for their world, right? Like learning to deeply understand the human craving to feel important, which is so often unmet. You know, we usually have food, water, a spouse, these things, but the human craving to feel important is often unmet for people. Well, yeah, it's, well, it, it's, it's interesting. It's unmet. And when it becomes met, it actually is unmet again because it's like, well, all right, I got them. Who's next? And it's like this, it's a, it's a, it's a very you know, uh, virtuous cycle in terms of just, it, it's, it's hard to do that. <laughs> so I guess my question is like, I was trying to formulate this question and I, I answered it partially of like, what about if you're, what about if what you're offering helps with more than one need, you know, like baking powder can use, be used for baking or like getting the smell out of your shoes, right? Eat the, eat the bacteria. So, um, what if people are buying this from us for different reasons? Then how do I change my messaging or change my, what do I do? Yeah. So I think, I think part of this is actually to understand the three or four different reasons why they do it. Like this is where we get to the pattern recognition, right? And you start to realize that people, when they're new and they're basically growing and they need to accelerate, they're going to hire you versus, you know, I, I literally, you know, I'm established, but literally like I need to filter and I need to actually get more people, you know, I, I want to basically uh, have it focus more. And so you start to realize like these people who are two different, almost starting points, two different situations, they're both hiring you, but they're hiring you for very different reasons. Though, though the mechanism of how, what you do is the same thing, but for them, one is about how we scale. The other one is about how we focus, which seem almost like opposites, <laughs> right? And so this is where this is where you have to look at. See, you 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 keep trying to look at it through your product. You look at the customer through your product. What you need to do is throw your product to the side and look at those people and say, why in the world would they want me? What in the world is going on in their world that says I, how I can help them? And what's the language they wrap around it? So this is the other part is we actually end up creating features and benefits that is the universal language that can relate to everybody, but then it means nothing to most everybody, right? And so this is why I don't like features and benefits as a, as a thing. It's like, I'd much rather talk about the situation you're in, the outcome you want, and then here's the things we can do to help you make that progress, which you could say are the features, but the benefits are actually achieved by them, not by us. And it makes me, it makes me think that um, I'm probably asking an, an impossible question of asking what they want instead of being honest that they're grouped, you know, like, so we, I had a call they this morning. They don't know what they want. They don't know what to do. They know, they know the outcome they want. They don't know how to do it. And so what happens, we keep talking about how, what and how, when it's really about who, when, where, and why. If I can figure out who, when, where, and why, like I can then go build the what, how, and how much. We keep trying to ask them what they want. And they're like, ah, I don't know what I want. I just, I, I need more sales or I need more of this or I, 
I, I, I want, I want to focus more. I want to, I want to accelerate my growth. It's like, all right, well, what do you got to do to do that? Like, that's where you got to fill in the gap. And that's part of the point of taking the step, taking ourselves two, three steps back to look at the whole and see the system. Because when we don't see the entire whole, we think it's all about posts. And then we got to say, look, look, we, we got 35,000 posts last year and we got this many likes and we got, but yet it doesn't achieve the goal they want. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so we have the wrong metrics around the outcomes that they want, but they're metrics that nobody can dis like. I was just on the phone with a with a very large organization where they're you know they're they're metric they're reviewing their metrics of kind of uh, 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 executive development and how they're developing this organization and one of the things is is like they they have what I call most of their metrics are input metrics how many people got trained how many hours did they get trained like this is all about action or or, or activity but it's not about the output or the outcome I guess so so my thing is is what conversation, how many conversations changed because of this training? How many people have solved problems faster because of this training? How many people have actually, you know, uh, been able to kind of uh, focus because of this training? And you start to realize, like, nobody's measuring the true outcomes of the training. They're just measuring the act of training. Okay, so I had an analogy come to mind. Will you tell me if you think it's, if it, if it's a good analogy or bad? But as you're talking, I'm thinking about the conversations, right? And I'm realizing there's, like, some commonalities, but but differences in intensity. It's almost like there's multiple buckets. There's like the, um, you know, how I want life to be different a year from now is I want in, I want big investors. How I want life to be different a year from now is I want big clients. And then it goes the other direction where it's like, um, I want to I want to raise our company's reputation in the industry and with the right people, and um, all the way out to like. We want to in, we want to influence like regulators and uh, like we want the media we want the media to we want the rest of the media to pick us up because we're we're seen as influential and it's it's almost like okay well, like I want this I one, want to, I want to be an influencer as recognized by other media outlets coming to me as an influencer yeah and it's almost like there's kind of like these four different buckets and That's it's right. like everybody needs their own color of paint it's like I need. You know, some people put in a lot of blue investors, some red for clients, yep, some exactly. influence yellow, and then some white for, you know, yep. right. And it's like, um, but, but I just then, need to be but honest. Then you have that... to look at, but then you have to look at your product at this and say like, all right, what are the features that are most relevant to each one of those buckets? That's the patterns I'm talking about is that they have very different objectives and they're usually in very different situations. And value is a combination of the context you're in and the outcome you see. Because if I start here and I want to go to here, I value it this much. But if I start here or I start there, I value it differently. And so part of it is, is it's not just the outcomes. It's, it starts with where am I and where do I want to go, right? The second part to me is that most people, they, they try to promise too much progress. And what I, what I mean by that is that sometimes it's actually better to give them a half step than give them the whole step. And so, and to be honest, because you like, to be honest, if you give them a little bit, then they can actually understand a new, a whole bunch of new things. And then actually they struggle with something else. And then they can value these other parts that you, that you give, gave away for free before, but now they're willing to pay for because they weren't smart enough to value it when they started. And so part of it, sometimes it makes sense to have a half step as opposed to make a, a, a big step or make a double step, right? Most well, people try to push a little too far. Um, so, so think of, think of base camp, right? And one of the things in base camp is, is like, 
Uh, what some people use Basecamp to say, help me think it through, right? And though though people might not use Basecamp to end up um, managing the project, what we found were people going there to say, we're going to put in the tasks, we're going to invite a bunch of people, we're going to discuss everything. And then ultimately, the fact is, is that what happens is they build that list of tasks and then they transfer it all to JIRA, right? Because that's where they run the system. And so the half step is like, we're going to give you a way to think through the project before you actually put it in because JIRA had no ability to do any of that at the time. And so you start to realize like the half step is just help me think it through. And to be honest, that's worth $99 a month for people. That makes so much sense to me. My question is, how do you not come across as schizophrenic on your website or like when you're messaging to people? Because some people want it to be the full management. Some people just want the half step. How do you, how do you bifurcate? How do you help people? You, you reflect those patterns. So for example, the way, the way that you know, I'm advising people to do that is to say like, you, you say like, look, there's four ways we help people. And you describe their situation and describe their outcome. And then they, they have an affinity to one of those four. And if they don't, then they're out because you really can't help them. And so part of it is, is most people can, can at least el eliminate two of the four and can say, well, I'm either in this one or in that one. And then ultimately, now you can actually talk to them very differently when, you, when they've identif self-identified where they are and what they want to do. And, and again, most people are trying to get them to the product and the features and benefits first. But really good websites take first of like, who are you? What are you trying to do? What is the outcome you're, uh, you're trying to get to? And what are you struggling with? Which one of these do you resonate with most with? And then it's like, okay, now let me talk about features and benefits. It makes me think that I need like a choose your, like my homepage should be a choose your own adventure. It's like, we help busy CEOs, which you know, check any of the following that apply. Like I'm looking for investors. I'm looking for big clients. I'm looking for influence. I'm looking to raise our organization's reputation. Check any or all. And then like it takes them to a different page depending if they clicked one or if they clicked three. Exactly. It's a, so I, I've done it where I create a Mad Lib. I ask them questions like, why in the world do you want to change? What are you hoping for when you do that change? What are you most worried about in that change? And what are you willing to give up to make that change? And then build a Mad Lib on it and say, hey, my name's Bob and you know, I need to move because at some point in time, my family's growing. And, and to be honest, like, I, I want to make schools closer so I'm not driving everywhere. And you know, what, I want, my, what I'm hoping for is to have a room for every one of, one of my kids and that they can walk to school and that you know, my commute isn't so far from the, to work. What I'm worried about the most is can I afford it? Can I sell my old house? And ultimately, I'm going to miss my neighbors the most. And by having people answer those questions and build the Mad Lib, it then helped people go like, yep, that's me. Okay, now, now let me tell you what I do. Can we talk about that exact subject of what about when people don't know what you do yet and you're trying to find out about their struggles, but you need some left or right limits? Like CEOs have so many problems in life. And you're like, how do you how do you help them direct it somewhat without overdoing it and trying to bias them? So the fir the first thing is is we usually lead with the wrong question. Okay. We we lead with the we the wrong question is how can I help? Okay. Because you have to realize that's a very complicated question. How can I help? Is uh, you've got to basically have two really big things. One is I have to be able to articulate my problem in a way that I can connect it to what you do. And if I don't know what you do and I don't know my problem, the answer I usually say is like, I don't know how you can help her. Like, I don't think I, can, I need your help today. And you then spout all the things you can do. And I'm still trying to connect what you do to my problem. 
where you need to start is basically asking people, what are the two or three really big things in your in your business that you struggle with that if you could solve would fundamentally change the way you do business? Right? Or what are the three or four big struggles you need to solve next year based on your strategic plan? And irrelevant to you, because you might not be, one is you might be able to help, you might not be able to help, but 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 if you can't connect to one of those three things, it's going to be pretty hard for them to actually, and what's really interesting is you most likely always can, but you got to start the conversation with where, why are they, where do they want to go? Why do they want to go there? And then ultimately then how do you fit? It always starts with them. It doesn't start with us. I'm going to have to like play this episode back to myself and take notes. <laughs> right. But I think that's, that, that's the, that's really kind of the point is that we need to get out of our own way. We need to stop talking about our product. We need to figure out like, here's the other, the other thing is our product doesn't make progress for them. They make progress with our product. So it's, it's the other things they have to do with it. And so we need to know about them more than anything before we can actually decide fit. So it's, it's, it's very lazy of us to walk in and go like, well, let me tell you what I do. I do this and this and this, I get this many posts and I can, I can help you build influence. And you're not knowing anything they want. Like, Half the stuff is literally, as Clay would say, is hitting against your head and bouncing to the floor because there's no space in their brain to hold the issue. And so part of it is is, is the most important thing for, for any kind of marketer and salesperson is to actually help create the space in the brain for the solution to fall into. And so the first thing you should always ask is a question is like, why did you take my call? What did you hear that thought I could help you? Right? As opposed to showing up and going, well, let me tell you what I do and who I work with and what we do. It's like, yeah, it's like, I don't have time for that. And most CEOs are pretty articulate about the problems that they have. You have to dig because most, most CEOs are so optimistic that they, 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 they down, like, how to say, they say, they say they, you know, I'm struggling with this. And that means it's usually a really big problem. Like they don't really reveal their struggles much, but at the same time, they have them. And the more you can actually help them articulate them, the more they're going to value you. That makes so much sense to me with the one-on-one -on -one conversations. Yep. Um, when you think about ways to have a system do that, to have, whether it's, you know, people filling out a questionnaire on your website yep. or like the ability to do that for a lot of folks, do you have any ideas? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so two things is to realize that even when you're selling to an organization, different people are in different places. And different people want different things. So the 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 the, the CFO wants one thing, and the the CR uh, the chief revenue officer wants something else. Though they're both buying Salesforce, and so you have to actually understand what does progress mean for each one of them. And so instead of trying to come back to, because again, this is a this is it's a very obvious statement, but most people don't realize that like companies don't buy anything; people buy things, right? And so people are the ones who make these decisions. And so you can't say, oh, General Motors wants to buy this. It's like, no, who at General Motors and why do they want to buy it? Because at the end of the day, their job is to do something and to make progress in some way. It's not General Motors. And so this is where we have to actually understand that this is all about people. And we have to understand how to find where people are coming from to know how we fit. When you think about an automated way to do that, I mean, as you're talking there, I thought, oh. You know, I've actually been on a few websites that had a pretty good automated assessment that walked me through my own situation and helped me kind of reflect. Maybe that's a way. That's exactly right. So 
think of it as as you do interviews and the jobs to be done kind of uh, uh, paradigm, you get to what what are the things that describe your situation that push you to say I need to do something new, and what you do is you ask them so so why why do you need to change now and you basically give a list of ten five ten things that that have to be present in their life present in their life for you for them to value you, right? And then you have to say, like, what outcomes do they really want? Not what outputs, what outcomes. Like, you're doing this because you want this to What do you want to happen that's not happening now? And then ultimately, those are the two easy ones, which I call pain and gain, right? But the other two, which is basically, what are the, what are the anxieties that they have that keep them from doing this? Most of the world doesn't, something like over 60% of all proposals written don't get acted upon, not because they're not good enough. It's because people don't know how to make the decision to move forward. And it's mostly because of anxiety forces. And so part of it is to ask people what they're worried about. And what they're worried about actually is then a reflection of the pain and the gain. And then the other thing is, what are they, what are they having a hard time giving up on, which is the habit that they actually like, well, we've always done it this way. We have a hard time getting, you know, we've always printed statements in-house. Like we want to move outside. So we have to give up our printers and the, the people who manage it. And like, we're like, I don't know if we're ready to give all that up. And you start to realize if they don't know how to give it up, they still can't make progress. And so there's this notion of fuel, which is pain and gain that make progress. And then there's friction, which is anxieties and habits that keep people from making progress. And it's the combination of those two things that you have to look at it. So a questionnaire is a really good way to actually make people aware of what's the situation they're in, what's the outcome they want, but what's the friction that's in their way that, that's holding them back. Do you have any guidance on how to help people feel safe enough to share their anxieties? Um, two, two things. One is um, I typically, um, I, I can only uncover them one is in the past. So like I need to talk to people who actually bought from me because they're going to tell me about the anxieties they had in hindsight. It's very hard for people to tell you about their anxieties in foresight because they're not even sure they have it, right? And then ultimately how, how they resolved it. The second part, though, is that if somebody suggests it to me, I can actually resonate with it. So what I'll do is I'll do 10 interviews looking at people who bought from me, think about what was the pain, what was the gain, what was the anxiety, what was the habit, right? And then, and then literally turn that into how do I flip it moving forward to say, What's your situation? What's the outcome? What are you worried about? And I have a list of worries that everybody else had. And if they identify them, that's going to help me understand the progress they want to make. Because the anxieties are part of the set, the data set that helps us understand which job they're in. I think my favorite thing that we've said in the last 49 minutes is when you said, um, how do you want things to be different in a year? And, you know, we, with a show like this, like, it really does take probably two or three years for the compound interest to fully kick in. Like you're getting it after a year, but for it to look really seeing, like you're probably looking at least two to three years, right? And so maybe I would extend that and say like, hey, if, you know, if this fully worked for you, what's the progress you hope you, like two to three years out, this is, this is meet, met your goals, what are you hoping? I would say don't layer the lang our, our language on it, the progress saying like, what will be different a year from now? Or what are you hoping to be different a year from now? Because if you put progress on it, sometimes it makes it too formal. And they're like, ah, I don't know. It's like, well, what, what do you think will be different? You got to make it very, very conversational. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of uh, Chris Voss's work and uh, never split the difference in how to 
how to how to interview and how to have conversations. If you haven't had him on, he's 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 awesome. Uh, I would love to have him on. Uh, one of my mentors who helps us at our charity, Child Rescue, that combats child trafficking, uh, they they work together in the FBI, and and he said that like Chris is the real deal. Like that's what he was like on the job before the book and all the the stuff. Let's say that 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 um, I do ask this more conversationally. Say, you know, what what are you hoping will be different a year from now? Um, when it goes to helping them, so so they say whatever they say, and and when it goes to excavating deeper, what what kind of principles do you have for helping people further excavate the idea they've expressed? Yeah, so I have this notion of what I call the layers of language, okay. and that most people start with what I call the pablum layer, which is this layer of language which. We can all agree to. It's like, oh, I wanted to like when you said, oh gosh, but your book was so fun. What does that mean, <laughs> right? And it's like, and it's it's usually mom and apple pie. It's all these things that you can never refute, right? And you start to realize, like, well, what does that mean? And and ultimately, you know, when I design a book, it's like I wanted, I'd love to design a book that was fun to read, right? And so part of it was is I have a formula to do that. And to be honest, I literally went and interviewed people who read books and said books, what were what was fun about it. And so part of it is the reason why I've engineered it. And, and I, I figured out how to get people to say that, which is through stories, through questions, and through and, and ultimately through frameworks. And, and those three things, enough stories. And so the, I think the thing that makes it very special in mind around that is what I call young Bob versus old Bob, or enlightened Bob, I think is what the two is, which is a play on the fact of like, you know, when I was young, I thought this way. And when I, after getting the crap kicked out of me a thousand times, now I think about it this way. And it's like, here's, here's the progress that I've made. And it allows you to start to realize a spectrum of where are you in that journey between, you know, young Bob and enlightened Bob, right? It's, it's all those kinds of things. And so I think that's part of this is being able to unpack things down to action, right? So when they say something at a very pablum level, like fun, or, boy, I want to have influence. You got to say, like, well, influence with who? And what does that mean, influence to do what? And, like, like, how do I actually know what it is? It's like, well, when I can get people, more investors to call me to do this, like, okay, got it. So you want to have an influence on investors that basically help you basically raise more money for your fund. Got it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's unpacking yeah. down to the actions of who, when, where, and why. I, I, have, a, I have an author I want to refer you to. That I think he'll yeah. really love. Do you know who Rob Fitzpatrick yeah. is? He wrote the I Mom Test. So oh, I've heard I've heard he, the book. I think he would love the Mom Test. It's kind of it's very similar to the kind of things you do, or like Steve Blank and like customer discovery, customer yeah. validation model. Yep. But it's like exceedingly practical. Like don't ask it this way; people will think you're a researcher. Like it's like it's so tangible the way he goes about it. Um, and then he wrote a great book on seminars. But his third book. Um, is called Write Useful Books. And it's this concept for, for looking at books differently, almost through like a product development mindset of like, what is the most, like, how can I create the highest, um, like, learning per page density? Like, how do I not waste people's time? How do I, how do I help them the most in the least amount of words kind of thing? And uh, he's built this whole community for like beta testing. You can join us. So I, I just joined it. It's like 30 bucks a month. And 
he has this whole system for having beta readers read your book and give you feedback along the way so you can find out like how's how's your helpfulness density how's your helpfulness density per page going and he just has you like test it over and over and over and over before you ever really publish the thing it's and uh anyways i think the two of you would get along i'm excited he's coming on the show soon yeah, yeah, I think part of that is to realize at some point in time, like, like I, I'm, I've been accused of feeding people with a fire hose, and to be honest, if that's the complaint I get, I'm okay with that, right? And so, and so, there's time and place where we need to slow down and practice and build skill, but at the same time, if you look at my both my books, I think they're under 200 pages, but they are dense. They are, they are, they are as as dense as I could make them, and to be honest. Every chance that like I'm writing another book right now where they've limited me to 10 graphics and I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with that. Like every, every book that I have has at least 30 or 40 graphics in it because it helps me articulate. So the way that I end up writing is I draw a picture and then I talk about the picture and that picture then makes it dense. So it's like that. It's like it's that thousand words plus then the explanation on top of it, which makes it very, very dense in terms of how people read my books. And I, I think those are all things that, that you have to be able to figure out how to design. Like you said, it, it's, uh, it's, it's all about product development to me. Listen, uh, we've talked about a lot of things I wanted to talk about. What do you want to talk about? Well, there's a lot. Let's see, where do we start? So, so one of the things I, I, one of my favorite topics right, right now is like, I'm, I'm finally excited, or not finally, I'm excited that the recession is finally here. I think recessions are awesome. Like I've, uh, as, a, as somebody who's fairly seasoned, it's like my fifth or sixth recession. And I, what I do realize is that recessions are, are almost a waiting game. Most people wait and wait and wait. If you think about it, we've been waiting almost since February where I said, well, we might be going into a recession. Finally, we have where I would say, you know, the, the, tech, the tech firms are finally laying off a little bit. They're all getting lean. But what happens is, is that this is when two things happen. One is the most entrepreneurs create new businesses in this time. The last downturn, 2007, is when a whole bunch of new businesses started and everything else between now and then, like the really big established businesses start always in a recession, right? The second is it forces people to take a step back and people's behaviors will be changing. And so all that does is create opportunity. What it is, is we can't continue to do the same things we used to. And so for me, I love recessions. It's, a, it's like a, almost like a, it's like a purging. It's like, okay, we got we to gotta cut back. We got to get a little lean. What are we going to do? What are we not going to do anymore? And all that does is it resets everybody almost not back to zero, but it allows you to actually create more opportunity. And so recessions are full of opportunity for those who want to look for it. But most people only look at the downside of it. And so to me, I, I, like, I want people to realize like, as the recession hits and it gets tougher, it's like, what, is gonna, what are people really going to start doing new? And what are they going to start do, behaving around? And what do we need to stop doing? Because my belief is that's really where, like, that's how we get stronger and we get more focused and we actually help more people. Because most people need more help during recession. Right? So most people are, are afraid of it. And I'm like, I want to, I want to, I want to, as somebody who's been through enough of them, realize like every almost every recession, I've built a business or two or three. When it comes to seeing opportunity, look, um, Warren Buffett says, "Be greedy when others are fearful." Uh, John D. Rockefeller says, "The most money is spade when there's blood in the streets." Like there, right? Um, the 
the established players are really hard to unseat when everything's going fine, right? Um, so if you have any guidance for entrepreneurs listening today to, to like what lens they can look at this, this next downturn through to, to spot the opportunity, what kind of guidance would you have? Yeah, so I, my favorite is really, uh, there's two, two, two approaches. One is, is I always look for what I call non-consumption, which is where do people want to make progress, but they can't? Where's the low end of the market? And that the solution is way too sophisticated or too expensive. And can I come up with a, a cheap or cheaper or simpler offering? And that most real disruptors start at the low end of the market and they, they, they fulfill a very, very basic need to those people who don't even have access to it, right? And my example in the book is uh, SNHU, right? And how so Southern New Hampshire University basically had 500 online students and now they have over 200,000. Right. And the whole thing was the premise was how many people want to go back to school but can't. And that's how they basically over 10 years built the largest university in the world because uh, and, and to be honest, reduce the cost and reduce the price to basically serve more and more people because there are more and more people who want to who want to get a new teaching certificate or basically become an engineer or become a nurse or something along those lines. And like if you want to go to Harvard or Yale or any of those big, that's fine. But when, for the rest of us who can't find the time or the money to do that. This is actually a really good alternative. And so you find that a lot of things happen when, when at that low end of where people want, want something, but they can't have access to it. And so that's yeah. the first thing that I would look at. The second is, is I'm, a, I'm a very big proponent of anomalies, meaning things that don't fit. And that what I would say is, is the way I always say is most people try to they look at an anomaly and then they say, oh, this is not, this doesn't fit. So they just throw it to the side. But for me, the anomaly embedded in the anomaly is the DNA of the future. Like, why did that happen? How did that actually come about? Like, why are people taking pictures with their Razor phone? <laughs> like, these are crappy cameras, but they're still doing it. Like, why is that happening? And you start to realize that the more you can understand when people are doing things when they shouldn't or, or trying to do something when they can't, it's like, that's where all the opportunity lies. And so, like, that's, this is how, like, ZQuil was was created by understanding like it was the NyQuil people who basically looked at NyQuil and said, when are you taking NyQuil when you shouldn't? Turns out that's ZQuil. And ZQuil is now almost five times larger than NyQuil. Really? Yeah. And so it's it's about finding the anomalies. And, and the, the two fundamental questions are, where do people want to do something, but they, they can't? And that's DayQuil. And where do people use it when they shouldn't? And that's ZQuil. <laughs> right? So those are the two universal questions I'm always asking myself when I'm looking at markets. Okay, my turn again. So you brought up something early on that I'm super interested in. And you talked about being dyslexic and, and these kinds of things. Um, you know, you, you look at such major success stories like Richard Branson, who, who believe his dyslexia helped him become a billionaire. Or, you know, uh, there's a social media guy, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's got like seven best seven best-selling books and he says he can't he never reads and he can't write but he's got seven best-selling books right um what kind of advice do you have for people who um who don't fit the uh, the standard school system and and maybe reading or being on time or the, you know like some of the things that seem to be easy for some folks they find hard what kind of advice do you have for those people specifically if they want to be entrepreneurs yes so i think the first thing is to realize that, so 
the first thing I'll say about dyslexia is it's the greatest gift that I ever got that I would never would wish upon my children, right? So it's something that, that like in hindsight, I can look at it, but it was pretty hard growing up thinking I was stupid all the time. There's a whole bunch of different, you know, bad scenarios wrapped around that. But at the end of the day, I didn't know, like I can do math, but I couldn't do, I couldn't read. And so I had to learn differently, right? And so for me, like every, every handicap, right? Everything you can't do well, to be honest, creates a, an opportunity to do something even better somewhere else. And so one of the things most people will say is like, I'm a really good uh, question. I'm, I'm really good at asking questions. Well, that's because I can't read. And the only way I learn is through conversation. And so I get really good at questions. And I realize like, if I don't ask the question, I'm never going to get that answered. So I got to ask it now. So most people go, God, that's a really bold question. I'm like, yeah, but it's better than not asking it. Right? So the advice I have is two things. One is I felt like when I was going through school, they tried to make me more normal. And what they did is, is by resisting to becoming normal, I actually then built superpowers. And so my belief is for every handicap you have, there's a superpower that's in the midst of being developed and you need to find it. The second thing is to realize that for some reason, the way the world has worked, and this is actually has to do with my next book, which is most people, they, when they go to work, they, they have what they have. Everybody has development opportunities. Everybody's got to get better at something. And what I've, what I've realized is that there are certain things that I suck at and that I'll always suck at. And I can spend, I spent literally an hour a day for 35 years trying to spell. And I finally gave up at 30, 37 years old, just gave up and said, I'm not going to spell. Like I got spell check. I got all these other things. And to be honest, I have to tell people I'm dyslexic. And the reality is I got seven hours back a week to do something else. And oh, by the way, what I'm really good at is pattern recognition. I write algorithms that are just, like, they're, to be honest, they're so fun. And like, I, I wrote an equation the other day of how to describe, uh, you know, how to learn something and what you, what's the equation you need to learn. And you start to realize like, that's a gift that I have. And so what I suggest to people is figure out what your gifts are, figure out what, you, what gives you energy. Figure out what sucks your energy and be able to be focused on kind of being able to select an employer or a, create a business that it revolves around your skill sets and your gifts and, and try to find and surround your people, surround yourself with people who literally love to do the things you suck at. That, is, that, that would be my single greatest you know, uh, uh, piece of advice to anybody is, Figure out what you're really good at, and then don't go find people like you. Find all the people, uh, surround yourself with all the people around you that do all the things you suck at. And that's how you win. That's how you, that's how you make a difference. That's such good advice. Um, and I think it really applies, but I'd love to see if you have anything to add. You know, when you talked about being good at starting things, but being honest that you're not the operations guy. Like I had to, um, I, I'm there as well. And uh, I feel like our, we've got a, our team has really changed um, as I've been able to bring some more of those people on. But, um, you know, like you think about research and development, like I'm not even that good at development. I'm like, I'm just good at the research part. You know? <laughs> like, um, uh, like I, I love the learning. I do my you know, two to four books a week. And, you know, we're almost at 
we're getting we're closing on 800 episodes of this show and i i watch absurd amounts of youtube talks like just like hours and hours and hours and hours but it gives you YouTube energy talks. that's why you do it you, oh i love it's it it's not work to you that, that that's the point is and oh by the way you've built a business around doing that and so ultimately the, this is not really work for you this is actually like i can't believe people are paying me to do this right? this part is for sure like people when i tell people i do you know i do interviews five days a week they're like oh that's a lot of work i was like are you kidding this is i wish i could do more like, i wish i could do more often so we actually have thought about doing two a day and doing 10 interviews a week. Yeah. And yeah. I just, uh, I'm actually just have like a, bo a an editing bottleneck right now. <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's right. But, um, but uh, I guess what kind of, what kind of advice or guidance or something would you have for me knowing that it's hard for me to sit at a desk and do other things five days in a row, let alone for the rest of my life. So, so I would, so one of the things I'm having people do is just, reflect on the last 12 months, 24 months, and, and define the moments where you get energy. Meaning when you walked in, you were like, eh, it's okay. When you walked out, you're like, holy crap, this is amazing. Like where and when and how do those energy creating moments happen for you? Because here's the reality is that most people have maybe 10 minutes in a month of that, right? And you start to realize if I can make it 10 hours or 10 days of 20 days, you start to realize like, holy crap, everything seems to get better. And so part of it is most people don't actually take the time to reflect on what really gives them energy. The other thing is that, that you, you tend to avoid situations that suck your energy. When you walk in, it's like you've got a lot of energy. You walk out, you're like, oh my God, that was so hard. That was like brutal, right? And so part of it then is to say like, okay, who can I build a relationship with that I can trust to take on the stuff that I suck at? And I think those are the two big things. And, and to be honest, and then find your bottlenecks. Like you're not afraid of two interviews a week or two interviews a day. The system can't handle it. So, okay, we get, we get a backlog. And so we have an inventory. Maybe we have to build two teams, you know, but how does the business really work when that happens? I'm not afraid of, I'm you at this point, you know, you're not really afraid of taking on two. It's more the fact is, is it really going to make the difference? And to be honest, one is, it might be that you have to, the second interview becomes more of like a, a not-for-profit interview or a, like a, some other thing that actually then complements what you're doing, but actually keep, because the hard part is keeping interest and, and learning the new things and, and the subtle, the, I can tell the subtlety is where all the, all the energy comes from. It's not, it's not reading the book. It's the interaction and making the book feel real to you that actually gives you the energy. Like if, if the book doesn't sing to you, you don't know what to do with it. What I'm looking for more than anything is like, you know, a new set of binoculars to look at the situation through. That, you know, like are these infrared? Are these, you know, like where I can look at the same thing and see something different? And kind of like, I'm always looking for a way to see through the noise. Like what are those critical few elements that actually matter here instead of the whole the whole environment? So are there are there any books that you read annually? Oh yeah, yeah. Multiple. Give me an example. Uh give me an example. Richard Richard Koch, the eighty twenty principle and his series. Yep. I And why why do you like once you've read it, why do you read it twice? Like you you've already read it. Oh. Why would you read it again? Do you know that Stoic saying, um, man cannot travel in the same river twice? 
because yes. he's a different man and the water and it's a different set of water. Yes. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a few in that series like that I that group together. So Gary Keller's one thing, uh, Shane Snow, Smart Cuts, you yep. know, and like, I mean, if I read those every week, it would be a different version of me reading. Them. That's right. And and we always, you know, like we've got, you know, got three companies in a charity. So we got a lot of problems every day. Right. Because that's, that's what a business lot, and charities a lot, are. A lot of opportunities, I would say. Sure. But yes. Sure. But there, there's constant situations. There's new hurdles to overcome. There's new systems to that's design. Right. There's always something and, to and happen. Priority is very different than it was last week or last month or last quarter. Like what, yeah. whatever it is, it's like it's very different. And, and that 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 advice is more of a mirror than anything else. And so what you find is really good advice is actually it changes as you change. And so it's it's the dynamic part of it that makes it so useful. And so so to me, every time like there's five books that I, I listen to every year, and those those books which, which I, ones? I get. Um, so one is called The End of Average by Todd Rose. Um, another one is uh, How to Fly a Horse um, uh, by Kevin McCown. and 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 those books literally remind me about. Or to be honest, they, they they help me see the world very differently. And and to be honest, when I frame when I frame uh, my world through those books, I, it helps me find anomalies. It helps me see patterns better. It helps me uh, realize that it's about uh, uh, hard work and 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 uh, you know doing the hard work and not being afraid to fail. Things like that. Where it's like it, it, like if I don't listen to them or I, I I have a gap with them, I forget some of those fundamental principles and that I. I slow myself down because I forget. And so I use the books to help remind me of things that have helped me in the past, but also to reflect on where I want to go in the future. And I listen to them all. And so listen. So the other thing I do is I draw while I listen. So it's, it's kind of, I get pictures out every time. Yeah, yeah. I, I read less than one book a year. I, I listen to them. Even my Kindles, I just having robot voice read it to me off the phone. Uh, by the way, your new one isn't on Audible. You got to give me an audiobook. Oh uh, yeah, there, there's there's an audible one coming. It's it's uh I just I we just uh, uh picked the uh, uh the the voice talent today. Yeah, you know, as you're saying that cuz like so repeat for me is like the 80/20 what I grouped together in the 80/20 world, the Warren Buffett like his mentors and his followers like Bruce Flatt and and Coward Marks and then the special ops community, especially the the most elite classified units like case officers and like Delta Force Dev Grew you know, and some of the other ones that don't like to be named, right? Yeah, I, I like, I never get sick of those. Like, I'm, oh, they're kind of like on repeat in between all the other ones. So, so my, my suggestion to you is figure out why, why those, what is it about those? Can you actually, because part of it is that then how do you expand the repertoire, right? Because at some point you're going to find other books that have the same thing, but it, there's, it's very hard to find books to, at least for me, to, that resonate so deeply that like, when I hear it again, I actually have completely different thoughts. And when I can find those books, it's like, okay, he's got to get into the, into the rotation. Hey, this has been so much fun. Uh, we need to just like set an annual thing, just have you on every year. I would, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. But I'll have another book next year for you. So we'll, we'll, we can do that one. It's, it's about uh, hire your next job. It's about helping people figure out what, like, it turns out that employees hire companies more than companies hire employees. And if we can actually figure out kind of the progress that employ that you're trying to make as an employee, how do we then negotiate the experience you want 
as opposed to just the salary and benefits you want. When, when will that one be out? We should book it for right uh, after the book's yeah, out. So, I can... uh, so it's, it, it, they're saying 2020, like I want, we'll be done with the manuscript by, I want to say May-ish, but it should be out either the, the end of 2023, beginning 2024. I'm not, I'm not using the same process I did for the last two books. This one I'm writing, Ethan Bernstein at the Harvard Business School and Michael Horn and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Catherine Thompson. And then we're, we're doing it through um, HarperCollins. So it's a, it's a, I'll say it's a serious book. <laughs> where the other ones were kind of, I'll say, tests. So, yeah, it's Clay's, it's Clay's, uh, uh, Clay's editor, you know, so it's very cool. If people want to follow you on social, they want to come check out the Rewired group. What, like, where are yep. all the online places? Um, so, to be honest, uh, we just relaunched the website today uh, or this week. Um, it's therewiredgroup.com. Uh, LinkedIn is the best place to kind of reach out to me. And, and you know, uh, I, I post almost everything on LinkedIn and I've got uh, blog posts. We have a circuit. Uh, we have a podcast called The Circuit Breaker, just working on season two of that. Um, so we're nowhere near 800, but it's it's one of those things where it's uh, people people give us questions and then you get 30 minutes of us bantering about that question it's with Greg Engel, who's my business partner for 20 years. And then um, at Bmesta is uh, B M O E S T A is my Twitter handle, and that's the other social media I do. So those would be the best places to follow or learn or, you know, uh, get engaged with the the content I have. And then there's uh, I have four books, but uh, the two most recent are Demand Side Sales 101 and uh, Learning to Build, um, both all on Amazon. And uh, who is your ideal client at the Rewired Group? I'll say basically um, people who are struggling uh, to uh, uh, to build and launch new product where they've either missed deadlines, they've they've uh, um, they thought something was going to take off and it didn't, um, where the process is broken, the insights are are uh, not deep enough, or the co the communication between the groups is is uh, muddled. Um, typically, we work with everybody from small startups, to not for profits, and large corporations, but they all need to be struggling with trying to launch product. Um, or services faster, better, or cheaper. Well, this is fun. Can't wait for next time. Thank you. Thanks, Jess.